The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall. AmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, did you know that 89% or at least 89% of Americans experience at least one traumatic event in their lifetime? The fascinating discovery is that the majority of these trauma survivors eventually attest to a renewed zest for life, major empathetic growth, and increased emotional maturity, not despite but because of their painful experiences. Here to talk to us about this topic is writer, journalist, and TV host, Michaela Haas, Ph.D. Her new book is Bouncing Forward, Transforming Bad Breaks into Breakthroughs. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Michaela. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Obviously a timely topic, um, and your work has been featured in the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, Psychology Today. Uh, how did you, what, I, I get, I, first of all, your book, why did you decide to write the book, but how did you get engaged in this particular topic, this, you know, the, the concern or the uh, research that's involved, uh, obviously, for the book, um, traumatic events in our lives that can be really growth-producing um, Right. Well, there are professional reasons and personal reasons, because as a journalist, I very often talk to people who've experienced something dramatic in their life. And throughout my now more than 20 years as a journalist, I've often wondered about the huge difference that I saw in how some people fall apart after a crisis, while others not only survive, but thrive. And when I had my own crisis, I got quite ill when I was in my late 20s. Kind of from one day to another, I was bedridden and um, ended up being pretty much in bed for eight months with an autoimmune disorder. And I was not resilient at all. I had thought I was strong and resilient before this happened to me, but I wasn't. And so this sparked a personal journey on how do other people do it who've been through things much worse than what I've experienced? Where do they find their strength? And so I was very relieved when I discovered the research on post-traumatic growth. It's a term that has been coined by two amazing psychologists at the University of North Carolina who've been working with trauma survivors for decades. And they were surprised that again and again, trauma survivors told them, I'm not glad that this happened to me, but I've learned something from it. And so... um, more a few people know this term post traumatic growth, but I think a lot of people have experienced it or know what it refers to. And in a nutshell, um, up to ninety percent of people who've been through a crisis say that they've discovered a new personal strength, deeper relationships with others, new perspectives on life, uh, deeper appreciation for life, 
and a more intensive spirituality. Post-traumatic growth, and I think, you know, before the show we were talking, you said that's kind of, that term is very different than post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, post-traumatic growth has a very positive kind of outlook for the future, depending, you know, depending on what the trauma was. I mean, I hear cancer patients, let's put it in some kind of a context, uh, particularly, unfortunately, women that I know who have breast cancer are diagnosed with breast cancer and go through that and survive, and they'll talk about maybe what you're touching on, like it's not exactly the best thing that ever happened to them, but it's given them the opportunity and grows, to grow in ways they've never done before or experienced before. Well, I think it's important to emphasize that post-traumatic growth is not the opposite of post-traumatic stress. On the contrary, the, the stress and the struggle is the catalyst for the growth. If there is no struggle, then there wouldn't be any growth. And it's very, very important to me to, to mention that we're not talking about glossing over the pain and the despair and the fears that come with all kinds of trauma. And we're also not only talking about the big traumas, like the war in Iraq or a cancer diagnosis, but everyday traumas, uh, like a divorce or losing your job or being diagnosed with a non-life-threatening illness. And so the, the first step to post-traumatic growth is really to acknowledge the wound and to tend to the wound, because that's what trauma actually means. It means wound. So we're not... Um, like glossing over and say, um, you know, think positive. It's much, much more than that. And what I'm interested in is that with the science of post-traumatic growth, uh, we have so much information now about what actually helps people to grow rather than getting stuck in the trauma. And so it's not just um, a good wish, but it, there's actually a science and material and methods behind it about what helps people to emerge from a traumatic event stronger and more compassionate and wiser rather than shutting down. All right, I'd like to talk about the specifics, as you're saying, because uh, there, there are specific ways to, to work through the trauma. But just to backtrack a little bit, because even in my experience as a social worker, even in, in hospitals and uh, in clinics and even in my own family and friends, People, and I'm not sure they have actually heard of post-traumatic growth because what you usually hear or often hear is everything's going to be okay, you're going to be fine, and try to uh, sort of, you know, put the trauma away as quickly as they can, not talk about it, not discuss it, whatever it is, and, and try to get beyond it as quickly as possible. And it would seem mm-hmm. to me that prevents you from, going, from, from the growth. Yes, I think in our society we do two things that are not helpful and they are direct opposites. The one is the tendency to say, get over it quickly, like now. (laughs) And the other one is to paint a really dark picture. And that's why I don't use this term post-traumatic stress disorder because I don't believe it is a disorder when we suffer from anxiety or fear or panic attacks or depression or whatever it is in the wake of a severe loss or traumatic event. So I think we are too quick to try to get over trauma. And at the same time, we paint too negative a picture because every single trauma survivor I spoke with thought at first that they would never be happy again, that they could never lead a content life again. And that's not true either. So I find with post-traumatic growth, we 
we have found a middle way of taking the trauma seriously and looking at it and not being afraid to express it and talk about it. And at the same time, also showing that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, Michaela, can you put that in the context of what just happened over the weekend in Paris, in France, for instance, because all of these people, I would assume, are going to suffer from some post-traumatic stress, uh, um, you know, whether uh, either the persons themselves who were affected and wounded or their families. Um, So sort of give us maybe a timeline of how to deal with it in a healthy way, to deal with the, the stress that happened uh, with this terrorist attack in, in Paris this weekend. I think immediately when such an attack happens, we see two things. We see some people, we're all afraid. We're not, nobody really knows uh, what exactly happened, uh, who's behind it. I mean, we know it's ISIS, but we don't really know how they did it. And they're still looking for the for some of the attackers. So in this atmosphere of fear, you immediately see some people resort to hate and retaliation, and you see other people focusing on helping and being there for the survivors and offering help. And I've been talking a lot to people, counselors and psychologists who work with trauma survivors long term, because what usually happens is an initial outpour of compassion, and then everybody wants to get back to a normal life and forget about it. And what's really important is to stay there for the people for years and to be there as a support for them. Because one thing is that nobody can do it alone. We need support. And everybody who's been through a traumatic event knows that this idea that we could get through this alone by ourselves is mistaken. And so the one thing that I find really encouraging is the solidarity that has been shown worldwide and this outpour of goodwill. And even like this Port Ouvert movement where people in the midst of this fear in Paris, they open their doors to let perfect strangers uh, walk in and give them a place to rest for the night. So that creating that support and that um, being there for people who are going through this fear right now or who've lost people, that's important. So those are the people who are going to hopefully provide this support, as you say, on a long-term basis. What about the person themselves? What about the individual themselves who was sitting in the restaurant and and got shot at or saw a friend die? Um, (laughs) Where do they start from? Yes, they have to seek, hopefully seek the support, have the support, but then within themselves, what do they do? Um, again, I think the, the most important thing is to scout for allies, to not to expect yourself to deal with it alone, and to be able to express your pain and your fear and to talk about it. And also um, there is, like for instance, uh, the Sandy Hook anniversary is coming up, and there is a group that has formed, they call them the Sandy Hook Promise, And I think in the scope of the attack, you know, it's the the shock and the loss is somewhat comparable. And they are determined to use that attack that happened to them as a promise to create a better future. So we can use any kind of trauma and even such a violent attack to look at, well, what can we do to make the world a better place rather than immediately resorting to, to hatred and violence. You know, you talk about resiliency because, I mean, that's a 
a word, I guess it's thrown, a, thrown around a lot. Uh, it's a good word. Um, are there, and you say there is a difference between resiliency and post-traumatic growth. Yeah, that's really interesting because resilience is a consequence, a result of post-traumatic growth, but it's sometimes the least resilient people who grow the most because I think when, um, especially when a trauma happens out of the blue and we haven't prepared for it, and most of us, of course, you know, don't haven't prepared for traumatic events because we don't think it will happen to us. Sometimes this earthquake that shatters our world, we can use that to build a better foundation and to build a new world for us. And almost all the people that I feature in my book, from soldiers to surfers, they found their purpose in helping others, in sharing what they've learned from what they're going through. So, for instance, I spoke with uh, Brigadier General Rhonda Cornham, who was captured in Iraq. And when she came out of that experience, she asked that question, well, why do so many soldiers not come out of war experiences okay? And what can I do to help them? So she started a comprehensive soldier fitness program, a resilience training that focuses on not only physical, but emotional and psychological and even spiritual well-being. Because resilience is all of that. It's not just one aspect. And it's also usually not just one event, but it's like resilience is like a muscle that grows with exercise and that withers when we're not using it. But I personally find solace in the fact that even the the least resilient people can grow after a traumatic event with the right support and with the right methods. Okay. So in other words, most of us or almost all of us do have the capacity to grow, even if we... don't see ourselves as resilient necessarily before the traumatic event. But there's another, and I'm interested because I I worked in a rehab hospital with a lot of people who had uh, disabilities, stroke, or quadriplegics, or even paraplegics. And uh, there's um, someone in your book, Jesse Bilhatlauer, that you talk about. Jesse Bilhatlauer, yes. Yeah. Tell us about him because he's, as I see, a quadriplegic. And uh, give an example of his ability to to grow, post-traumatic growth. Well, Jesse was 17 when he was voted among the world's top 100 surfers. He was a star athlete. And six months later, at 17, he had a surfing accident that left him paralyzed uh, from the chest down. And what I admire about Jesse is, um, you know, we, we say, grant me the serenity to accept the things we cannot change and so on. And that's so easily said. But what I love about Jesse is that though he was so young, at 17 years old, he was able to do that. He said, okay, I'm not going to be able to walk again. But you know what? I can surf. And for him, it was important to get back into the ocean. So he uh, can move his arms a little bit, and he convinced his surfer friends to take him back out surfing. But not only that, the reason I included him in the book is because he started a nonprofit, Life Rolls On, where he helps other handicapped children and adults to go surfing and skating. And um, to me, that's a prime example of somebody who used the strategy that happened to him for a greater good for his own life and for others. Because before the accident, he was focused on surfing. It was about catching the next wave. His life was about competing. And now his life is about helping others. And I've heard that from so, so many people 
who've um, been through a loss or a tragedy, uh, if they were able to channel their grief or their loss into a meaningful purpose, then they have a much, much better chance of growing. So you take your skills or whatever skills you had before the trauma and you sort of transform them, uh, change your maybe your, your goals, uh, but still using the same skills, kind of like getting on the off-ramp off a highway and changing highways, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but, which is what it sounds like the, uh, Jesse did. Is there anything that one can predict, because you said there's a lot of scientific research related to this kind of growth, uh, where you can really maybe pinpoint those characteristics where people don't do well, because not everybody does do well. Are there things that we need to nurture in ourselves to help us? Because I think in the beginning I said 89% of Americans experience at least one traumatic event. Well, it seemed to me there's probably everyone, if you include some of the lesser traumatic ones that you mentioned before, Pretty much everybody, yes. Yeah. We don't always know what's going to be traumatic. I've talked to people who've um, been diagnosed with cancer, and they say, I take that as a challenge, but the real traumatic event in my life was my divorce. So it's not always predictable what pulls the rug out from under us. But one thing that all the people have in common who grow is that they're not afraid to look at themselves honestly and openly. And that's important because... If I could, like, uh, I, I could have written a book about how to get stuck in trauma, and on top of the list would probably be um, alcohol and drugs, because if we try to avoid looking at ourselves honestly or glossing over the trauma, and if we, if we are not willing to um, engage with what has happened, I believe that we don't, um, we increase our chances that, that we get stuck there. Uh, because we cannot detour the tunnel. We cannot detour the pain. We can only take temporary leave of absence from it, but we, we cannot avoid that struggle. And I, I have a few people in my book who try to do that, and they try to distract themselves, and um, maybe they uh, worked a lot or drank a lot or whatever they did to get away from feeling and remembering that experience. And sooner or later, an un acknowledged trauma will always pop up unexpectedly, will hit a wall at some point. It will come out in aggression or in an addiction or whatever it is. So that's why the support is so important because if we don't have people around us who are there for us and who are willing to listen to us when things get uncomfortable, then we, we, you know, we, we have a much harder time of processing it. And at some point, we need to integrate what happened into our life's narrative. We need to accept that this has become part of our story. And at the same time, we need to move forward. My friend, Alain Beauregard, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer, he said, let go, but don't give up, meaning he had to let go of all the things he loved in his life and he had envisioned for himself. And yet, he did not give up. And eventually, he pulled through and worked with his cancer to the point where he now says that cancer was the best gift um, that life has given him. Well, I think this, uh, the comment you made, integrate into one's life rather than trying to push it away or pretending that it didn't happen. I mean, I think yes. that's key. And finding how, in a healthy way, you can integrate that trauma into your life uh, is really that seems to me is really key to be able to do that. Yes. 
Because we know now that, for instance, a lot of the soldiers who suffer from prolonged post-traumatic stress, they, a, a lot of them were already um, suffering from depression or alcohol abuse or uh, impulse control issues before they went to war. So they already had a mindset that wasn't the strongest before we put them in this situation. And I think that's often what happens is that if you're already... Um, Vulnerable? Not... If you're already, you know, sometimes one catastrophe comes after another. So in an ideal world, you know, we we wouldn't let these soldiers go to war. Or it's also soldiers who are particularly young or soldiers who belong uh, to a minority, meaning they don't have the greatest solidarity or community around them. So these are um, indications um, that very, very often um, these are the soldiers who will suffer from prolonged post-traumatic stress. So in an ideal world, you know, if we could identify those risk factors and then protect these people and not put them in life and death situations, prevent the trauma in the first place, of course, that would be the best thing. But if we can't do that, then at least to help them and be there for them, which we don't do nearly enough, whether it's the veterans or whether it's after uh, violent attacks such as just happened in Paris, um, there is never enough support and there are never enough resources in the long run especially. Yeah, and I think, Michaela, in social work terms, we call it if you are helping somebody or counseling somebody to get through something like this, you you know, their pre-morbid functioning is always something that you look to. How were they functioning before the accident or before they went to war or whatever the trauma happens to be or before they got yes. sick? I think one of the problems is, and you mentioned very often people try to, they don't want to, they want to sort of, put this behind them, literally, uh, the whole idea of addiction and medication. But we have a society, and maybe you could address this, where we are really pushed by the medical community, by most of our sort of cultural community, to medicate ourselves and to mm-hmm. not feel any pain. And to uh, it's really important that we try to alleviate any kind of pain, even if it's not traumatic. Um, and so this kind of plays into a... Uh, not a negative way of approaching a a, uh, a traumatic event that, that, that doesn't promote growth. Well, as a social worker, you probably know that in America we're the world champions in taking painkillers. Yep. <laughs> we're taking eighty <laughs> percent of yeah. the world's painkillers, and I think that goes far beyond reasonable pain management. And it is certainly an indication that we do anything to numb ourselves rather than feel what's going on. And that's why uh, in Bouncing Forward, I've actually included a chapter about a woman who is unable to feel physical pain. Because people always say, I don't want pain, I don't want to feel pain. And the pharma industry is really working on finding that switch, that genetic switch where we could turn off all physical pain. And the thing with that is, and what I show with um, Maggie's life, is that we actually need pain. Because if you cannot feel pain, it's life-threatening. And pain is a guide. Pain screams at us um, and asks us to listen, demands that we listen. And I'm firmly convinced that the more we suppress pain, the, the, the louder it will scream at us until we finally deal with whatever we need to deal with. And as you know, with painkillers, you cannot just numb the pain selectively. When you take painkillers, you also numb the joy. You also numb the positive feelings. 
Well, there has to be some kind of tension, tension within the body. I think you uh, described that earlier, or stress, however you want to define stress, that motivates us. Uh, And uh, so, yes, that's true, but we don't seem, it seems to be getting worse, I guess, this kind of medicalization of whether it's childbirth, take childbirth, something that, or... uh, any kind of distress, physical distress. I had a, a friend who just had some teeth work done, for instance, and it was fairly serious, but uh, uh, one could take a leave to alleviate some of the pain, but the the, uh, the dentist or the oral surgeon, they were kind of pushing the narcotics, you know, take this and then you won't feel anything, and, you know, you take this for a few days or a week or whatever it is, and you won't have experienced any pain. Mm-hmm. That's that's an example, but and when you're in a vulnerable position like that, you kind of I think some you know even if you don't want to, you sort of I think acquiesce. That's not a good thing. Well, sensible pain management is a good thing, but one of the things that surprised me the most was that when I went to the Army's resilience boot camp, the soldiers start every morning with meditation. And uh, because the Army has learned that meditation actually alleviates pain more effectively than morphium. And, of course, without the side effects. And not just the physical pain, but also emotional pain and mental pain. So they teach the soldiers meditation now, mindfulness meditation. And I think meditation can teach us to stay present, to stay present with what we're feeling right now rather than running away. Because in the long run, we cannot run away, not from ourselves and not from our story, from our experience. And this, I've, I've been practicing meditation for over 20 years. And of course, in the Army, they teach it in a completely secular way. It's very basic mindfulness meditation. And though it's so basic and they only use a few minutes on it every day, still they found that the effects were just mind-boggling, both to help people get through stressful situations, but also to heal trauma. There are even effects on the brain, like sometimes trauma changes our brain. And they were able to show that regular meditation can mitigate some of these even physical changes in the brain. So I very much recommend trying out methods like this that even the Army uh, is now using. And another thing they're doing is that they're teaching the soldiers not to be afraid to speak about their fears and weaknesses and not to be afraid to reach out for help. So I thought that it's so interesting that the Army has really ditched this Rambo image or this image of the strong, invincible soldiers because they recognize that we need to be honest with ourselves in order to be able to deal with these challenges. Yeah, I've noticed that not just, I mean, you're talking about the Army, but there are other, uh, I, I don't know what you would call it, mainstream or what the right word is, where we really are beginning to integrate meditation uh, into the curriculum. Even hospitals are beginning to do that. Even, and there are physicians who now recommend it who would be considered, I, I'm using the word mainstream or Western medicine. They're combining the two yeah. um, and you know, calling it, I guess you refer to it as integrative medicine, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is a good thing. Um, you know, the Rambo thing doesn't really work. Um, no, and it doesn't <laughs> only not work, but it's fatal. We're now losing more soldiers to suicide than to the war. And so I'm talking about the Army because I believe that they're the organization that has the keenest interest to figure out 
how to deal with trauma and how to help people heal from trauma. And so that's why I looked closely at what they're doing and how they're changing their approach. And I've learned a lot from it myself. And the soldiers learn a lot from the training, not just for war, but a lot of them have told me that, you know, it's challenging to be stationed overseas. Their families are falling apart or their marriages um, are, are weakened. And so they use these strategies of like open communication and facing stressful situations in their daily life with their relationships. And uh, that's really the key, I think, to, to practice all these principles every day and in, in our everyday life. And we have to say goodbye because we have like 30 seconds left, but to learn obviously more about all of this, uh, you can uh, buy uh, Michaela's book, Michaela Haas, Ph.D., Bouncing Forward, Transforming Bad Breaks into Breakthroughs online, bookstores everywhere, and can you give us a website also we can go to find out? I, I know you do coaching and other things uh, if yes, we want. My yeah. website is MichaelaHaas.com, M-I-C-H-A-E-L-A-H-A-A-S.com, and you find a lot more information about Bouncing Forward, about post-traumatic growth. Uh, you'll see a video of the surfer, Chessie Billower, surfing and uh, lots of interesting things like that. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. Yep, great to have you. We are going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in each week for Monica Phillips and powerful conversations. This is a thought-provoking show for business people, leaders, and entrepreneurs. We'll feature today's thought leaders and industry trendsetters from across several locations and industries. Give yourself permission to be inspired and live a fulfilling life. Be sure to listen to Powerful Conversations, live every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, 12 noon Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, the recent 
release of the film Spotlight and Pope Francis's visit to the United States has helped to revive discussion about the child sex abuse scandals plagued within the Catholic Church. A survivor herself, Joel Castex, has spent the past 14 years as a leading expert and go-to media source for information on the Catholic clergy sex abuse crisis in the United States and abroad. She is a survivor herself, she's an advocate, and she's the author of The Well-Armored Child, A Parent's Guide to Preventing Sexual Abuse. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Joelle. Thank you so much. Well, obviously, uh, from my introduction, your book is timely. Uh, you've been, and uh, you are a person who, a young woman, a woman who has suffered from uh, sexual abuse yourself, so, and, and now a leading expert and advocate. Um, let's start with, you know, I just saw the movie, by the way, Spotlight, like last week, and it was horrific. And, and I, you know, I, I remember in the 70s uh, when this was happening sort of vaguely, but everything was pu- pushed under the rug, which seems to be the case, um, not just with the Catholic Church, because as a social worker, I experienced that when I was doing uh, clinical social work. Why? Why don't, why are we just now in 2015 beginning to really address the problem of child sexual abuse? Well, first, I'm going to take you back a little bit, because the movie is, because you said it was horrific, and I, I want to make it clear that what they're talking about in the movie is horrific, but the movie's actually really good. Yeah, oh, and, sorry, okay. Yeah. Oh, no, and, and, and that's, because this is something, because a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't want to watch a movie about child sexual abuse. And what I always say is, it's not a movie about child sexual abuse. It's a movie about peeling away the layers of the onion of cover-up, because that's something that people can... I mean, I'm in the business and I don't want to see a movie about child sexual abuse. But if, if it really is, it's a mystery novel in many ways. And it's peeling away the layers of the onion to find out the true core of what was making people who were supposed to be good people. They were supposed to be moral people, yet they were doing these horrible amoral things and covering up child sexual abuse. And so it's, it's interesting. We, you know... When when we're deluged with something in the media, we become overwhelmed, and then we just shut it off because we can't take it anymore. And that's what happened with the clergy sex abuse crisis. It it bubbled up, and it became this huge explosion in 2002. And actually, in California, our scandal broke a year earlier with a case about Father Michael Harris. He was a a priest and a high school principal. He was Father Hollywood. I mean, he was one of the most famous, charismatic, outgoing Catholic priests there was. And there was this horrible civil lawsuit um, that was brought forward by one of his victims. And and through the course of this lawsuit, all these documents were exposed. They'd show that they had sent him to treatment for people, for priests who sexually abused kids, that they had known about allegations for years, that they had covered up for him, that they knew he was stealing money and everything else, but they didn't care because he was such this great fundraiser. And that was a year before Boston. So Boston explodes, we get overwhelmed, and then people just, they don't want to hear it anymore. It goes on to the next tragedy. And people think that, you know, many times life can be like a television show where everything's neatly wrapped up after a half hour or an hour. And unfortunately, that's not the case. And Boston is just one archdiocese. And there are hundreds of dioceses across the country where scandals like Boston have exploded. And they have been just as bad, if not worse. 
And, and not so, just in the United and, States or just in America. We're also talking around the world. This is a global problem, a global issue. Oh, uh, oh yeah, definitely. And, and the reason... Yeah. Um, well, um, I want to ask you first, what, you, what was your personal experience? What happened to you? So in, um, when I was in high school here in Southern California... I was sexually abused by my high school choir teacher, and it was at the same high school where this very charismatic priest had been principal. And um, I was like many victims of sexual abuse. I came from a home where my mother was an alcoholic. I had emotional problems. I was suicidal. I spent time in a psychiatric hospital for acting out on my suicidal um, tendencies. I, it was a half, half attempt to kill myself. I had been in a psychiatric hospital for six weeks. I get out of the hospital. A new school year starts, and there was this new teacher. And he had been told about me and my vulnerabilities, and he targeted me. And so for two years, my junior, um, and so I was between 15 and 17, um, he sexually abused me. And started with grooming, which is the way that a predator gets a victim to be compliant and manipulates a victim into not saying anything. And by the end of those two years, I was pregnant and had a sexually transmitted disease. And um, what's even more tragic about it is that the school knew about it and didn't do anything. And the Diocese of Orange knew about it and didn't do anything. And they know that he went on to abuse other girls, and they didn't do anything. Did you have anybody that you could go to or that you went to and ignored it? Or were you alone? I mean, you're describing an alcoholic mother, and you had all of these pretty traumatic kinds of stuff happening, you know, to yourself in terms of your mental health and everything. So uh, who did you go to or did you go to anyone or were you, you know, silent? Well, the first person I went to was the vice principal who had helped me when um, I was hospitalized for the suicide attempt. And I told her what was going on. I told her I was confused. And she was friends with my perpetrator and had already known. And she told me, she goes, well, isn't it great to be in love? No one will understand if you say anything, and you might end up back in that psychiatric hospital, so you better stay silent. So in other words, she threatened you? Yeah. And so I didn't say anything. My friends ended up finding out through the course of the abuse, and because they were also manipulated by my perpetrator, they blamed me. Blamed you how? That you were seductive? That you wanted it? That this was Exactly, that I wanted the abuse, that I, um, I asked for it, I wanted it, I liked it. And, you know, I was not, I dated in high school, but I was not sexually active at all. I was underdeveloped and, you know, no, no 15-year-old asks for a 30-year-old to sexually assault them. So um, I was, I stayed silent. And then when the abuse ended, I was a freshman or sophomore in college and I told my parents because Things were, I was scared that they would get a phone call from one of my high school friends telling them what had happened, and I wanted to be the one to tell them. And because they were also very old school, very much um, into the cult-like atmosphere that was this high school I attended, it was called Modern Day in Santa Ana, very popular, they said it was my fault. And they said that if I had just kept my legs shut, I wouldn't have gotten myself into this problem. So I had nobody by this time. And, and I assume you said you were pregnant. You got pregnant that you had to, that you had an abortion. I did, yes. And went through that by yourself. Yes, I did because there was no one to go to. 
and I was in a position where it was a double-edged, it was was a a multi-edged sword. So I was being blamed for the abuse. I was being told I was a horrible person. And now I'm even in a worse Catholic conundrum, which is figuring out what to do with this pregnancy. And so I was put into a very horrible, horrible, you know, emotional state. How did you figure that out on your own? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is trying to get some uh, understanding of what happened to you, because this is not an isolated story, obviously. So if one, if a young woman finds herself in the kind of position that you were in, what can one do? I mean, it, it seems almost impossible. And how did you handle all of that yourself? And, and you know, it's, it's amazing what you do when you're in survival mode. I wasn't thinking about other things that kids cared about at the time. You know, I wasn't excited about going away to college. I wasn't, you know, I had a a job, but I wasn't excited about it. I didn't really have a social network. My job was just to survive day to day and very much a, what do I need to do to get through today? And so that was, that was the mode I was in. And so when you're in that situation and you're like, you know, oh crap, I'm pregnant. What do I do? You go step by step to make sure that, that, you know, that, that you become laser-focused on what you can do to remedy that situation. Because in, for me, having that child was not an option. Because not only would I have exposed, quote-unquote, the horrible things I had done, I would have blown a lid off of what was going on at my high school. Because my high school had 13 active perpetrators at the time. I would have been, you know, I was under the impression that I would have been this shameful thing to my parents. I mean, growing up Catholic, there is nothing more shameful than being the girl who comes home pregnant. I mean, they would prefer you be an axe murderer. And so it was, I was just in survival mode to make it, make it through each and every day. And, you know, did I thrive during that period? No. My health went down. I had horrible anxiety. I didn't sleep. Um, I was in this, um, you know how when people are in that victim-like mode, no matter where they go and what they do, they always end up in victim situations? That was me. And so, you know, survival is no way to thrive, and so that's how I made it through, just day by day by day. But then something turned it, or you wouldn't be talking to me today, but something changed, or you changed, or circumstances changed, or what happened, because you did go to college, I mean, despite all of this, you you did go to college, or you... Yeah, and so what what happened was, because really, when you, different people have different ways of a a low-level existence. For me, school and education, that was the easy part. So, you know, I went to college and going to school was the easy part. Living and being social and being happy were the hard parts for me. So I was able to make it through school. Um, I even spent a year abroad. But during this whole time, you know, emotionally I was, you know, one catastrophe away from suicide. I was a mess. And so uh, I graduated from college and... um, like many survivors, got into, you know, bad relationships. I got married and then got divorced very, very young. And I realized that I was on this collision course. And because I, I would never be happy. I was in this horrible state of self-loathing. I, everything I did, I sabotaged myself. And I realized that if I kept on that track, I was going to die. 
and I'm kind of glossing over how bad it was, but it was really bad, and I knew that I was going to die. And and at that moment, and I was probably, I don't know, 25 or 26, it was, it was that first time that I it was able to kind of snap out of that teenage mode of live fast, die young kind of thing, and I woke up, and I'm like, well, crap, I don't want to die. And, and I looked around at people around me, and I couldn't figure out why other people were happy, and I wanted to be happy. And so I made a decision, and my decision was I'm going to live. My decision was I'm going to be happy. My decision was I'm going to get help. I'm going to get serious help. I'm going to snap out of this victim mentality I'm going to um, make a conscious decision to do things that are positive for me and to surround myself with people who are positive. Because you know, when you're in that, you know, oh my God, I just want to die and, and live in a dark cave mode, you tend to attract other people like that. And so you all go down the swirling whirlpool together. And so I made a decision. And it was a hard decision to make. And it was a... a continual set of decisions. I mean, you make the decision one day, I'm going to be happy, and then two days later, you're like, crap, I really got to be happy, and you, know, you <laughs> keep moving on. I mean, yesterday, I'm like, oh, God, I got to be happy. But, um, you know, it's really just, it is within everybody's power to be happy. You may not be able to white-knuckle it yourself. You, you know, I needed help. I needed serious therapeutic and psychiatric care because I had had so much trauma in my life that sometimes you have to retrain your brain. But I knew that I couldn't do that myself. And I knew that I needed to make the decision to get help. And so you had, I'm calling it, it's not really an aha experience, but it's ongoing and it evolves, it sounds like what you're saying. But here you are, you're you're well-educated, you're smart, and you were, even though emotionally you had all, obviously, this turmoil, uh, you were able to do that. How maybe we can kind of put this in the context of like okay that's your experience and and look what happened I mean it you I mean you've turned out to be uh, not just someone who helps yourself but you know actually the world you've written your book you're the head, I didn't say this either but you are the uh, Western Regional Director of SNAP which is the Survivors Network of those abused by priests I mean you do all kinds of things um, how what are let's, this is a little more academic but what can we do for for women who find themselves in the position that you found yourself in, because who are the predators? How do you know? How do you protect yourself from them? I mean, I know there's a whole list of things that kind of go contrary. You know, we think about predators, some creepy guy out there who's going to entice us. Well, we don't go off with creepy guys. We go off with nice guys, people we know. And so, you know, let's start from there. Like, what can we do? You know, I know there's um, a whole body of knowledge and stuff, but let's let's give some, you know kind of practical things for, for those or who might be listening and, and, and being abused by the priest or teacher or um, coach. Um, how can we help them? Well, I think you hit on a word that is very, very important, and that's practical. And the practical thing is to get help and call the cops, period. If you are, if you are being sexually abused or your child is being sexually abused or you know someone being sexually abused, you get that person help and you call the cops, period. And the reason that I think that, you know, the Catholic sex abuse crisis blew up, that Penn State blew up, that the Boy Scout crisis blew up, was because people assumed that 
people in charge would do the right thing, and they don't. And so um, if you, I mean, calling the cops and reporting abuse is not pointing fingers. It's not a witch hunt. It's not any of that stuff. It's crime prevention. And that is the number one thing we can do. Um, if you are being sexually abused, a lot of times you, you know, predators are very cunning and they make the victim, whether it be child sexual abuse or domestic violence or dating violence, they make the victim somehow believe that it is their fault and that a turn of events that the victim put into place is, is why this violence and this sexual abuse is resulting. And, you know, I, I tell, I don't present to teenagers per se, but when I talk to a teenager, you know, about it, I always say, hey, you know what, it is never cool, it is never safe, and it is never legal for an adult to be sexual with a child or a teenager. Never. Period. If that adult is being sexual with a teen or a child, you call the cops. If there is, um, you know, any kind of coercion or force, it's never okay, because especially that's what we have to bring that up when we talk about dating violence and child-on-child sexual abuse. You call the cops, and it is never, ever, ever the victim's fault. And then that takes me back to the practicality thing, because, you know, you can't be, in a, in a realistic world, you can't be a romantic and expect the world to, you know, go the way you want it to. You need to be prepared. You need to have confidence and self-esteem. You need to take maybe a self-defense class. You need to evaluate situations and not put yourself in situations if you are in a good place where bad things happen. You know, you can't expect to go to a bar and drink too much and think that everyone else is going to do the right thing. You really have to take control over your body because other people... The only person that you are responsible for and the only person that you can truly control is yourself. All right, and can we backtrack? Mo- when you're talking about teenagers, that's one demo group, right? But what about 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and we teach them to be respectful of authority? And what we're really talking about are people who are abusing them and taking advantage of them and grooming them and uh, are people that they know it can be there it can even be a parent but let's say your uncle or your teacher or and you know i'm i'm naming the, the obvious people who are close to you how do you sort of help your child to maintain a certain respect for authority but then help them to realize when that crosses the line you well, know what i'm saying difference yeah. yeah there's a big difference between respect and body boundaries Um, I mean, I go, and when I talk to parents, I tell them, hey, you know what? Never force your toddler to hug or kiss anyone they don't want to, even if it's grandma, even if it's you. If they don't want to be hugged and kissed, they have the right to not be hugged and kissed, and that is not a sign of disrespect. Um, When a child has language about their bodies, meaning they have the correct biological terms, those biological terms are not tinged with shame or, you know, because, I mean, when I was growing up, if you said vagina in school, you got in trouble because that was something we didn't talk about. Now, my son is nine, and he says vagina, and there's nothing weird about that. It's a body part, just like a liver is a body part and a spleen is a body part. Now, he knows the basics, basic mechanics of sex. His nine is about that time, but he has no desire to know anything else, and it hasn't destroyed his innocence. So he has strong boundaries. He's been taught from the time he was very young that not only is no one to touch his penis, except in the situation where he's with the doctor and mom is there, 
but he's not to touch anyone else's because predators love that. They love to say, oh, well, okay, I understand. No one touches you where your bathing suit goes. How about you touch me? So, in other words, it's, it's, it's knowledge, it's information, it's not destroying your children's innocence by any means. Uh, it's arming them with good information and the correct information is what you're correct. saying. Correct. Yeah. And, if, and it's, it's not a matter of, of respect because, you know what, you can respect authorities by shaking their hand, by looking them in the eye, but no one touches your penis, no one touches your vagina, no one takes pictures of it. And you make it so clear and so just a regular rule. It's like, you know, my nine-year-old doesn't drive the car. Nobody touches his penis. That it's not a matter of fear. And it's, it's a cut-and-dry rule that if, if something does happen that could possibly blur that line, my son says, hey, wait a minute, no. I'm armed with information, and I'm going to tell my mom. Yeah. And I, well, I think the second part that you just said, and I'm going to tell my mom, when you tell your, when you tell your children the truth... Um, and eventually that seeps, they, they realize that you have been telling the truth. That really opens up the dialogue between the, you and your parent. Uh, and that's the, so if something does happen or if something that they feel uncomfortable about someone's trying to touch them or treating them inappropriately, they will go to you because they trust you. I mean, I think that's a huge piece of it. Um, it, it, trust yeah. is a huge, huge thing. And, and I work with a lot of survivors who say, oh, I could never tell my children because they're going to think I'm a child molester or they're going to look at me differently. You know what? Your children, um, you know, my son knew something bad happened to me. Now that he knows the basic mechanics of sex, he knows it was sexual abuse. And he knows that I've worked to get past it. Kids don't care. They just want the truth. And they want you to be consistent. And so as my son grows, he will be, feel comfortable asking me questions because it's not a taboo subject. It's not something that's scary or weird or awful. And if something happens to, to him or one of his friends, he'll be like, hey, wait a minute. I can go to my mom. You know, one of the, and, and we only have a few minutes left, uh, but I, 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 one of the problems is, and I don't know how you, ha- it's difficult to handle, uh, say you, you suspect as the parent um, that it's your, your own, an uncle or a brother or some close person within, you know, your immediate family who is attempting or has abused your child, um, calling the, you say, you know, obviously there's no question you call the cops, but what happens in that situation? It's not quite as easy. You know, there's a lot of stuff that, that you know, that they they try to, in well, my experience as a social you, worker, they'll try to if, tell the, yeah, the kid not to, you know, maybe you made a mistake and, you know, and they go from there. Well, you know, I, I come in at this point, you know, I am the sex abuse awareness lady, but you know what? I'm not an investigator. I'm not trained to be an investigator. I don't know how to investigate, so I don't. So if I see sexual abuse or my child comes to me and tells me things that make me think that that's child sexual abuse, I pick up the phone and I dial 911. That's what 911 is for. They'll, they'll hook you up. That's fine. And 911 is not going to fine you and they're not going to yell at you. But let's say, you know, you see something or you feel something and you can't sleep at night over it. Something happened. Your child tells you something that they saw in the schoolyard. A kid in the neighborhood discloses something to you that doesn't really seem like sexual abuse, but you're not sure. And as a parent, you know, you have those nights where you're like, crap, what do I do? You know, I, I, can't, I don't know who to talk to. You call the National Child Abuse Hotline, and it's 1-800-4-A-CHILD. They also have a website. 
And they have trained crisis operators who answer that phone 24 hours a day. And they ask you questions. This is this, they are trained interviewers. They understand what to ask. They ask you where you are. They ask you, you know, where the thing occurred. What, you know, what did you see? What do you suspect? And then they will tell you the correct people to call. Okay, so we don't have to take, we have 30 seconds left. It's not, yeah, there are steps to take and there are people that we can turn to and you just have to, and, and, you, had, and you have to do that because you're not taking on the, responsi- the whole responsibility yourself. But I want to, the well-armored child, a parent's guide to preventing sexual abuse. Uh, you can buy it online, bookstores everywhere. Uh, survivor and advocate, Joelle Castix. Uh, what, what's, just name the website quickly so we can... Oh, and my website is castex.com, C-A-S-T-E-I-X. Thanks so much for being on the show. A lot of oh, my really pleasure. good inf- Yeah, thank you, Joelle. Uh, we have to say goodbye, unfortunately. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 